You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Andy Barrar. We've got a super interesting show for you today. Of course, we're always talking technology. Today, we're going to talk about hacking, and uh, we're going to kind of get the inside perspective. That's right. Uh, this is a, a rare opportunity that we had. We're going to talk to somebody who did one of the biggest hacks in 2000, a Canadian hacker. He did it when he was 15 years old, brought down some of the biggest sites, and Yahoo at that time was one of the biggest sites, and he brought it down. And we're going to learn all about that and what he's doing now, because he's apparently reformed and he's a white hacker so he helps companies make sure that their uh, security systems can't be hacked so we'll learn about the past the present and what the future holds for him as well a lot of uh, interesting stuff happening in uh, the news uh, this week uh, obviously the big thing uh, in Vancouver uh, if the liberal government gets re-elected uh, in the spring here uber could be hitting the streets by uh, December what do you think Annie well, the government said a while ago, and this is quite almost six months ago, they said it's not a matter of if Uber's coming, it's only a matter of when. So they have announced that it will be coming. It's about time because it is so embarrassing when you have people coming from other cities to Vancouver and they'll come to me and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to get an Uber. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> you might not even get a taxi. <laughs> exactly. You might want to try our transit system. <laughs> so it, it's about time. You know, we, we travel all the time, Mike, and we use Uber, but we never get the chance to do it right here in our own backyard. So it's about time, and uh, hopefully it will come, and soon. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the government has outlined some of the things that they're going to do to help the taxi industry, which, of course, will never be enough because it's disrupting their entire way of, of life and how they make a living. A uh, million dollars to creating their own app, uh, which kind of fun, a little funny because a lot of them already have developed their own apps. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to all work. Are they going to amalgamate them all into one? Uh, that's yet to be seen. Uh, and some anti-crash technology on on cabs. I don't know why they wouldn't want that on the Ubers, mm -hmm. uh, but somehow they've got a few million dollars to, to build that into uh, taxis. Uh, you know, there's no question that uh, we haven't heard the last from the taxi industry, uh, but it's uh, a sign of the times. Uh, you know, a lot of industries have been disrupted by technology, taxi the taxi industry is uh, unfortunately one of the uh, the latest ones. You know, it's funny. I was reading an article the other day, Mike. You know how we have automatic elevators. You push the floor that you want to go. Back in the day, you had someone who actually did that for you. And what happened is they had the technology to make these automatic elevators, but it took 50 years for the public to trust that that thing could do it by itself. And you didn't need someone to physically tell you what floor you were going on to. So I think that's what's happened with Uber and the autonomous vehicles. It, it, it is very disruptive. It's changing things of, of the way we've known it for. And um, frankly, you know, being tech guys, it's just about time. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to see. Uh, obviously, we'll probably see uh, companies like Uber and Lyft, which is a big competitor down in the U.S. I don't know if, if everyone knows about Lyft, uh, the spell L-Y-F-T. But, you know, maybe there's going to be some uh, local homegrown uh, ride-sharing services that might be able to uh, compete in this uh, arena as well. Well, we do have one ride-sharing kind of a service. It's more of a chauffeur service, a company called Cater. Uh, we talked to them before. But what they do differently is you get a driver or a chauffeur to drive your own vehicle around. So you could hire someone, I think it's about 25 bucks an hour, in an app. They will come to your house. They will get in your car, drive you around. They'll do all the parking for you, pick you up when you want to, and take you home. 
the difference with that one is it's your own vehicle, whereas Uber, it's all within an app, and you're going to be able to just get people to do it. I, I don't know if this will disrupt the taxi industry because you've seen it in other cities. In Las Vegas, for example, at all the major hotels, you have an Uber lane and now you have a taxi lane. And they both still seem very, very busy. Yeah, I, um, I'm hoping that the taxi drivers will uh, benefit from the uh, increased awareness of uh, availability of uh, rides. You know, the challenge right now is I think a lot of people don't use taxis, especially in the suburbs, because you can never get one. There's just not enough. The government's never allowed enough taxi licenses, and they've uh, kind of geolocked everything as well. You know, the taxis couldn't go outside of their geographical area. Uh, now that's all opening up. Uh, so uh, I think I think it might be good for them as well. But if you're a taxi driver, wouldn't you just want to just use Uber? As Depends if you have your own car or not. Yeah. So I, I think that... Because they're using either their taxi or in most cases, the person who owns the taxi licenses taxi, they're renting it off them. So you might, and they probably already have their own vehicle at home, so. Yeah, but if they don't, then they're kind of stuck. That's right. Yeah, that's that's the challenge. Other stuff in the news, uh, uh, Andy, uh, kind of some interesting uh, stuff. We, we talk a lot about Cody boxes. Uh, these are little... Uh, mini computers. Uh, you can make them out of a Raspberry Pi, which is a little computer that you can buy online. There's people selling them uh, through Craigslist and other places. And these are essentially devices uh, that uh, hooked up to an internet connection in your TV. Uh, you can, uh, in, in essence, get a lot of free TV channels. Kind of a gray area, obviously, or maybe illegal in, in, in many cases, but uh, more and more people are getting into these boxes. We've been... Um you know, experimenting with Cody boxes for about a couple of years now. But what's amazing is how popular it's become. People that you typically don't think are very techy are talking about this because they hear that there's this box that can give you free TV, whether that's TV channels, movies, TV shows, live TV, and even live sports. So I've, I have a Cody box. I've built a lot of these uh, over the years for family and friends. It is completely gray area, but there's talks that... They're going to really try to hamper it down because it's becoming more and more popular. Companies were actually selling these boxes preloaded with all the software that you needed. And now they're starting to get cracked down on that as well. So it, it's an interesting thing to see how the future holds. It's it's really like a, a black streaming box. Like we, we talk about Roku and that have these channels that you can subscribe to. This is more on the dark internet side because it's basically finding all that content on the internet scrubbing for it and then giving it to a nice interface that's very, very similar to how Netflix shows their content. Well, it's interesting in a study uh, over in the UK, uh, and I found this fascinating, uh, people over 55 years of age were six times more likely to use these boxes to watch pirated video than, than young adults, which I thought that was amazing because, you know, you've got to have a bit of technology to make this technology, uh, technology, sorry, to make this all work. Well, anecdotally, I can tell you my dad, who is not techie at all, has one of these boxes. Uh, he heard about it through his friends. We got him set up and he can navigate right through it and he can barely use his smartphone. So it just shows that it's getting better. It's getting more user-friendly um, and people will learn tech to get free content. And that's what we're showing with that study that says if you're over 55, you're six times more likely to be using a Kodi to watch your content online. Uh, another interesting story. I don't know if you've seen this video online, uh, Andy. It's been popping up in my Facebook newsfeed. Uh, Airbus has got this new uh, pod car drone uh, demo uh, video. That's kind of uh, kind of their idea of how the future might be with cars and, and flying cars. 
It, you got you to gotta Google this thing. It's, again, uh, Airbus. It's kind of a, a concept thing, but they're basically showing this little four-wheel car with a little pod on it. Uh, it's autonomous. It'll drive you to where you need to go by itself. And then if you want to get there faster, uh, you can basically call for uh, the drone part. Basically, this flying drone will come over and then sit on top of the, your car pod and then take off. It is kind of hard to explain, but imagine this. You're in this little tiny pod car, so it's like a size of a smart car, and you're stuck in traffic. You can, on your app, then order this drone to come over, land on the top of your car, it connects to the car, and then picks you up and takes you where you need to go. It, uh, it is an amazing concept. A lot of people thought that Airbus wasn't really serious about this. It's just something that they're experimenting with. But they said that this is a serious idea, and uh, they're working on it to see if this is something they could implement, and maybe we could see that in the future. Kind of freaks me out. Like, how, how safe is this thing going to be? Well, I mean, you look at it. I mean, it looks cool, but, um, yeah, I don't know how far we are off for something like this, probably another 20 years, really. Uh, you know what? 20 years ago, I bet you were the, talking... the safety regulation, regulations. Yeah, but 20 years ago, I bet you would have said that, you know, we can't have a self-driving car and look how close we are to that technology. So it takes time. They're going to work it out. It, the weight issue is what I'm really concerned about because we know from drones that they can't carry much weight. That's got to be a pretty big drone to be able to just uh, pick up a car and take it to somewhere else. Andy, we got a, like an awesome prize again this week. We've, uh, we're, we're giving away some great prizes here on Get Connected. This week, we're giving away the Asus Transformer Mini Convertible Laptop. This is both a tablet and a laptop in one. It even comes with a stylus, so you have multiple ways to interact with this device. You have to go to our website to check it out. Go to getconnectedmedia.com and enter and win the Asus Transformer Mini Convertible Laptop. Thanks to our friends over at Intel Canada for giving this prize away for us to give to you. We've got lots more to talk about. We're going to be chatting with uh, Mafia Boy. He's a high-profile Canadian hacker that uh, back in the day hacked into some of the major websites out on the internet. We're going to learn uh, how he all got started, uh, what kind of brought his downfall, <laughs> and what he's doing now uh, on the good side of hacking. He's a white hat hacker. That's right. Which apparently is a good hacker. That's a good hacker. You're listening to Get Connected. We'll be back right after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Andy Brar. We've still got lots to talk about on today's show. Big theme, though, today is hacking. We've uh, got uh, a great hacker on the line right now. His name is Michael Mafia Boy Kelche. He's a, a former high-profile Canadian hacker uh, who's uh, hacked into some major websites uh, back in his day. Michael, uh, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Do I call you Michael or Mafia Boy? I prefer Michael, but really the choice is yours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I kind of wanted to get uh, into your story, like how you, you started, and of course uh, we'll get into what you did and, uh, and what you do now. Uh, but when, when did you start getting into computers? I got my first computer when I was six years old, actually by chance because uh, my parents were actually divorced at the time. And my father was a in the transport industry as a businessman, so he was very busy at the time, and basically had to, had to find a way to occupy my time when I was with him. So he took a computer home from work and uh, basically plopped it down in front of me, and the rest is history, so as they say. And what, what year was this, Michael? Oh, I was, uh, it was the year 1990, 
I had just turned uh, six years old. Wow, those are early computer days. That's like <laughs> the 386 or 286 uh, computers back then. Yeah, it was something of an anomaly. Like, not many kids obviously had computers at that point in time. So, what were some of the first things you learned uh, back in the day? <clears throat> well, obviously, I was learning to, la- to navigate through DOS. Um, that was definitely one of the first operating systems I had to meddle with. And I was kind of reading books early on about programming, like early languages like Pascal, and just kind of understanding the inner workings of what a computer is, what it does, and how I can manipulate it, most importantly. Well, that's interesting because this is pre-internet time that you're actually learning all these skills. You know, the internet was around, but it really hadn't gone into public or, or people's computers in their homes yet at that time. Right, but thankfully there was a few books at the library, so the good old library where you have to go check in and get a card, not an e-book. What about, um, Michael, did you ever use BBS, the bulletin board service? That was my early entry into like computers communicating with each other. And I know, Michael, or Mike, you've done that as well. You were into BBS in the early days. Absolutely. BBS was my, um, my first interaction with like using a modem and kind of downloading stuff it took forever to download don't get me wrong but uh no definitely use bbs and kind of navigated through there and, and so what was kind of your first uh, entry into uh i guess hacking so to speak my first actually <clears throat> when i was nine years old i don't know if you guys remember but they sent out this AOLC, <clears throat> basically offering 30 days of free internet access and i had gone online and for the first time, I was like, wow, this is interesting. Other people are you know, looking to do what I want to do and interact with each other, talk about technology. And then I noticed the channel M4W and you know, quickly understood that this was a channel for like online dating or for like opposite sex to talk. And I was like, this is crazy. So I started messing around in that channel. And actually, somebody punted me offline. And I had no idea how someone was able to do that and from so far away wherever the person might be but the person was able to sever my connection online so that really piqued my fascination and kind of fueled it if you will and kind of wanted me to understand more about it so i went around and i found a tool called aol downloaded it and started punting people offline (laughs) just for kicks Oh, I mean, it definitely was hilarious. Like, I, the power was somewhat, like, overwhelming, you know? I just couldn't believe that I was able to also cut people's internet connections. And then kind of went a little deeper when I realized that the 30 days was coming to an end, and I had no idea if my dad was going to, you know, renew the service and give me his credit card for internet. He had no idea what was going on with the internet and stuff like that. Um, so I had to find a way to stay online. In the program AOL, there was an app that allowed you to appear as an administrator online. So I went online and basically started asking people, uh, due to a power outage, I need to verify your login name and password. And sure enough, at the age of nine years old, I was social engineering adults for the login name and password. And the first four out of four worked. So, so you were <laughs> able to use their logins then to continue to be on the internet after the 30 days had expired on your account. Exactly. 
That's interesting. That I remember crazy. that's my first uh, was the AOL CDs. You remember they would come in the mail? Oh my god, they, there was like millions of them. Every every week you're getting one of these CDs or, or discs in the mail. They, yeah. they, they became coasters. Yes, in, in my house. Yeah, and so obviously your uh, your dad didn't know anything about this. No, he had no idea. He he was completely oblivious. He didn't even really know how to use tech. He had an assistant. She like printed documents for him. He is not tech savvy at all. He just thought it would be a good way to occupy my time and, you know, uh, thank God he didn't give me a fishing rod, so to speak. Because <laughs> I don't know where I'd be right now. Did, did you have, like, other friends that were doing this at the time or were you making connections online in those early days? At this point, I was just starting to become a part of a community online. I knew nobody that even owned a computer locally at this point in time. You have to understand that this was, like, very early technological days. Unless you were, like, an accountant or someone who really needed a computer. Uh, people didn't have computers at their home at that time. That is crazy stuff. And from uh, from there, what was your next step? <clears throat> so from there, I wanted to download pirated software. I really loved video games and very hard puzzle type of video games. So uh, I needed to find a source where I could download pirated software. And I was discussing on the AOL community chat, and basically someone had mentioned to me IRC, which is Internet Relay Chat. And I went, you know, I downloaded MIRC and went on to Internet Relay Chat and realized that there was a much bigger picture here, and there was a huge subculture of hacking, pirated software. So basically when I wanted to download a program, I realized that the bot that was, you know, offering me the, the program it put me in a queue list of like 6,000 people. And like, we're all on dial-ups. So, you know, I won't be downloading that program for like three weeks. So I had to find a way to circumvent that. And I realized that it was hackers who ran these channels and were the ones distributing pirated software. So I went and I saw at the top of the channel, it said, go here, we're looking, we're recruiting. And I went into a hacker recruitment group and kind of pleaded my case and begged them to, to take me. We're talking with uh, Michael, a mafia boy, Kelche. He's a high-profile Canadian hacker, bad hacker turned good. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear more of his story on uh, how he, uh, I guess, developed uh, even further. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Andy Barrar today. Today, we've uh, got uh, kind of a cool show. We're uh, talking about hacking. Uh, to help us uh, understand that world, we're hearing the story of Michael Mafia Boy Kelche. He's a former high-profile Canadian hacker uh, who's hacked some major websites uh, in his time, but now working on the good side of hacking uh, for, for companies. Thanks for joining us again, Michael. My pleasure. So just before the break there, we're talking about how uh, you were in the IRC chat channels uh, looking to download uh, pirated software. Uh, wh- what happened next after that? So I, I needed to find a way to circumvent the whole process because obviously there was a lot of people trying to download the software as well. And I noticed there was a hacker recruitment channel on top. So I went to the channel and I you know, spoke to the leader of the group and he said, I'm inexperienced, I'm too young. And I, I got a little bit discouraged, but I told him, look, I'm ambitious. You know, Just give me tasks and I will complete them. So he put me on basically kind of like a lease. I had tons of conditions to follow through on. He wanted me to install operating systems I had never heard of at the time, like Linux, and delve deeper into programming. 
And within two weeks of proving myself, I had joined my first hacker group. It's like hacker boot camp <laughs> that you were in. Hey, you bet you. They were a very serious business back then. It's not like today, let me tell you. But, you know, were, were the authorities or anyone really going af- after you or, or them at, at that point? Did they even know how to look for, for you guys? I mean, I think they were aware, but hackers like were more about attacking each other at that point, not really about financial gains. So I don't think they paid much attention to it. It was more so like... Really, I'm, very minimal. Uh, I think their presence was very minimal on IRC. Yeah, Michael, I remember in the early days of hacking, it was more for like just to show that I can take this site down or look what I can do, it's better than you. But nowadays, it's more of a financial thing. They're, they're hacking because they want to make money. But in the early days, it was just about kind of like, I guess, your virtual street cred, was it not? Oh, for sure. It was all about, you know, ego and boasting, you know, like, oh, I got, I got into this or I shot this guy down. It was like hackers versus hackers. It was an all-out war. And that was really the objective at that point. So what was one of the, the, you know, jumping ahead, what was one of the major sites then uh, that, that you, you started hacking? Well, we fast forward a little bit. I learned a lot of programming, buffer overflows, and uh, denial of service had come out, and it was a very prevalent style of attack. And I put together a project called Revolta, which essentially was probably one of the first mass distributed denial of service botnets and ended up targeting major websites such as Yahoo, eBay, CNN, Dell, and Amazon, and shut them all down. Michael, you just mentioned that DDoS, uh, Distributed Denial of Service. Just tell our listeners what that really is in in terms of uh, the hacking of websites. It's basically when you're sending transmissions in the form of packets to whoever your target may be, and basically overwhelming them with so much requests and packets that Essentially, they can't cope with it, that it basically shuts the server offline. What's interesting is that's still a common hacking method today, and, and a lot of the, the big hacks are, are what they call DDoS. It's just flooding servers with so much information that the websites have to shut down. Was, was that a big common thing in the early days, or was that just something new that just kind of came on the scene? Well, denial of service had existed, um, you know, famous programs like WinNuke and uh, Teardrop and Smurf and these type of like simple type of denial of service tools. But really, me and my group, uh, TNT Force, had taken it to the next level and brought it to a much broader scale and much larger scale where serious amounts of bandwidth were put behind the attacks, which enabled us to shut down um, major companies, you know, and these companies are e-commerce, right? This was during the year early 2000, during the e-commerce boom. So essentially, after shutting down these e-commerce sites, when investors were putting in, you know, millions and billions into these companies, the overall uh, estimated damage was $1.7 billion damage done by a 15-year-old. <laughs> Okay, I, I shouldn't be laughing, uh, but a 15-year-old causing that much damage. So when 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 did they pick up your scent and, and get on your trail? Um, it was a little scary. Janet Reno and President Clinton had convened a summit based on what I had done. So, you know, they had sent 16 FBI units, joint task force uh, with the RCMP. So it kind of, it got a little hairy very quickly, and... They ended up apprehending me, I think, three, four months after the event took place. 
Um, How did they find you? It was a pretty lucky break. Um, if you remember when you logged into ISP back in the day with dial-up, you had a login name and a password. And it just so happened that my ISP previously, like three years uh, prior to the attacks, my login name was Mafia Boy. So it was an error on my part. And, you know, they caught on to that and basically found out where I had moved to and started monitoring my residence and kind of connected the dots from there. Now, they came into Canada and they were monitoring you from, from in like Montreal? Yeah, in a belt truck, actually. I saw them numerous times. So, so you're, you're at home and you see this truck on the street that's just sitting there for days on end and you're starting and you're 15 years old wondering, like, is this the FBI watching me? Uh, there was no guessing at this point, especially when they were still there on Sunday at like three in the morning. Like, how long does it take to uh, <laughs> telephone line? And are you living at home? Obvious. Are you living at home still? Me? With yeah. my parents? Yeah. No, I've been on my own since I'm 18. Okay. No, but back then, you were obviously living with your parents still. Oh, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was 15 years old at the time. And, and so, did they just come, like, knock on your door and put you in handcuffs? Like, how did that happen when you actually got caught? Um, surprisingly, they they raided the house at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Friday, and I wasn't even home. I was actually at my friend's house watching Goodfellas, um, and I got a phone call saying, you know, go to the end of the street. The RCMP is coming to pick you up. And... What did they do with the 15-year-old at that time? That's that's pretty amazing when you got the FBI, the RCMP involved. Did they take you to the station and, and book you, or were they trying to extradite you? How did that happen? I'm sure extradition was probably first on their list, but obviously, you know, Canada's not going to let go of a 15-year-old, especially for a technological crime, especially at that point in time. They didn't even have laws for what I had done at that point. They literally had to write laws based on what I had done. And they picked me up, brought me to my house because they had to read my rights and my, and my residence for some reason. Um, and from there, they took me to the RCMP headquarters uh, here downtown Montreal. And did you do any time? I ended up serving eight months and paying a $250 fine. What did your dad think? Were you grounded? <laughs> oh, boy. Um you know, he was obviously, he knew I was a good kid. I was just misguided and kind of drunk on power. So he was obviously upset and told me what I had done was wrong and I should channel my energy and, and focus on the good stuff and how I could apply it to help people and help companies. And that's exactly what I do today. Well, on that note, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk with our guest, Michael Mafia Boy Kelche. He's... Uh, a, uh, a high-profile Canadian hacker uh, that hacked some major websites back in his day, but uh, now on uh, the good side of hacking. You're listening to Get Connected, back shortly after this. You're back with Get Connected. Mike and Andy here in studio. We're talking about hacking today, and we've uh, got uh, an expert on the line. His name is Michael Mafia Boy Kelche, former high-profile Canadian hacker, now on the right side of the law. Thanks for joining us again, Michael. Yes, sir. Happy to be here. Uh, Michael, so we've uh, we've heard your story and uh, how you uh, started out uh, in the hacking business. Uh, some of the uh, the the big hacks you've done uh, taken down by the authorities, uh, but now today uh, you're what's called a white ha- a white hacker. What do you do for a living? Basically, I'm a security IT professional. Um, I have a company called Optimal Secure that basically provides pen testing solutions. 
where companies will engage me to test the sensitivity of their networks and see what I'm able to get in and provide a comprehensive report of my findings at the end of it so they can better protect themselves. So basically, you just went on the other side of the fence now, and they're paying you to try to hack into their systems so you can find the the holes that other hackers would try to uh, infiltrate. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the the landscape has changed immensely, so individuals like myself are highly prized in this industry right now. Well, we talk a lot about uh, connected devices and the IoT of the Internet of Things where Typical devices like your smart TV, even Wi-Fi cameras are always connected to the internet. For, from a consumer point of view, can those be hacked? We, you know, we, we hear about those stories, but is it an easy hack or is it going to be tough for somebody to get into your home? Look, everything right now, the way that technology has evolved, everything can be easily breached. And it's quite crazy to think about all the devices we're putting online. I mean, you just look at the type of attack that I launched denial of service um, that happened in August last year, there was actually a huge large-scale attack and baby monitors were a part of that denial of service attack. I mean, that's just scary to think of that, you know, these baby monitor devices are being connected to their Wi-Fi and that was used in an attack to shut down a high-profile Site. We actually uh, covered that, that story, Michael, and the thing uh, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with, these baby monitors have two-way microphones, so you can listen and talk, and I think what happened was some parents heard a hacker talking through that microphone, and they could actually hear it, which is very, very frightening when you think about it. It's just crazy to think about all the devices that are being connected, and I myself, like even when I do pen test jobs and I folk, I tell the companies like, you know, I don't go the traditional way in. And when I provide my report for them, they're like, what? How did you get in through the printer? We thought the printer just prints stuff. And that's not the case anymore. Printers aren't evolved. It's, uh, it has 240 functions. So people are constantly overlooking all these new endpoints that connect to the Internet. And it really needs to be looked at. So that's where I come in, and I'm happy to say that I actually partnered with Hewitt Packard um, to help re- to help raise awareness about the evolving threats uh, that companies and individuals face today. Well, it's interesting. I actually was able to attend a, a Hewlett Packard uh, conference, I think, about a year and a half ago about uh, security uh, in offices, and a big part of it was security around things like printers uh, and, you know, the all-in-one units and, and copiers, because like you were saying, these things are connected. And so hackers aren't trying to get in through the traditional routes. They're trying to get into printers. Uh, you know, I, I heard another company got hacked uh, through their air conditioning system. That was Target. That was Target yeah, Canada. Yeah, it was crazy. Look at it like this, honestly, statistically speaking, next to computers and mobile phones, printers are the largest group of devices in an office setting which ultimately results in multiple blind spots if these devices are left unsecured. What other uh, kinds of uh, devices should people be concerned about? Oh, my God, everything. Just turn it all off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. It's too crazy. Now, honestly, the truth is, guys, when you look at the creation of the Internet and, and the Internet of Things, what the Internet is being used for today was never the original design. So... Security was never actually put in place. Like, if you look at it, DARPA and CERN laboratories 
who created the internet, like the use of it was meant to be a tool of communication and physicists to talk amongst each other. It was never, they never incorporated security at the actual fundamental levels. And now here we are creating a new device every day and, you know, it's the same inherent flaws exist. Michael, I don't know if you heard this. Uh, WikiLeaks just came out with a report saying that the CIA was going into people's homes using their smart TVs uh, to, even if they were off, they were still able to get inside. Is that another risk of, uh, is it possible for people to get in through something like a, a connected TV? Absolutely. I mean, I've already seen, I mean, I'm sure you guys might have heard of ransomware attacks. Yeah. Um, People's TV have been hit by ransomware, so it's, you know, the CIA is more than perfectly capable of uh, listening in through your TV, uh, look at you through your webcam. Everything around you is, is technology and you're surrounded by it. And it's really ultimately up to you to secure it because if you don't, everybody has access to it. As a former hacker, what's your what's your opinion for ransomware? If somebody gets a, a message saying that we have your personal information, you have to pay us this much money to get it back. Should they pay, or should they? What 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 should they do? Well, it really depends on what kind of data that you have, like how important it is to you. Because a lot of times it can be very hard to decrypt. But ultimately, as a preventative measure, the best thing you could do is back up your data. So. If you ever do get hit by ransomware, even though there are tools out there that can prevent it, um, you can download tools that just run in the background and prevent ransomware. But let's say you don't have that tool, you can also back up your data. And if you do get breached, just restore from you know whichever point that you you save that. Uh, there's ways. There's always ways to mitigate stuff, and nothing will ever be 100% secure. That's the bottom line. But all we could do is mitigate the risk. So you could be driving a car. It's a risk. You could die driving a car. It happens every day. But if you buckle your seatbelt, you're mitigating the risk of you dying. It's the same thing. Michael, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us on the show today. Uh, this has been very enlightening. Uh, and uh, good luck uh, in your uh, profession going further, uh, forward. I appreciate that very much. Andy and Mike, let's do this again sometime. I would love to. Michael, Mafia Boy, Kelche, hacker, turned good. Uh, doing a lot of stuff for Hewlett-Packard now, which, uh, good to know. Probably the safest printers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when we come back from the break, of course, we'll be talking more tech. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. Mike and Andy here in studio. Been a interesting uh, show, Andy. Uh, just goes to show you that... Uh, Hacking is still very prevalent. Uh, hackers can get into all sorts of devices. Uh, but, you know, I saw a really great article on the CBC website uh, this past week, and it was about routers and how poorly uh, they are defended. You know, you typically get your router, uh, and you know, especially from your ISP, uh, and you just let it sit for years. You never update it. That's the problem. It's not that the routers uh, have like a backdoor that are, it's easy to hack into. It's that they constantly upgrade the software, the firmware on the router as they understand how people are, are trying to infiltrate into into routers and get in through the back door. So the problem is, is a majority of people out there are not upgrading the firmware on the router. They, they buy it. They get it set up. Maybe their ISP comes and sets it up. But you have to constantly go in there to see what the latest updates are and then 
update them just like you would do with your own computer. That is how you keep yourself secure. And it was interesting talking to Michael. This is the first time that we had a chance to talk to a, an actual hacker who was now reformed or a white hat hacker. And um, it, it, it's funny because those guys know how to get in. And that's what he gets paid now from the companies to, to basically say, try to hack our system. And then he'll tell them all the different security holes that they need to address. Andy, the uh, the prize one more time. We're giving away the Asus Transformer Mini Convertible Laptop. This is both a tablet and a laptop in one. It's courtesy of our friends over at Intel Canada. you got to go to our website to check this out. If you have an old laptop or an old computer and need an upgrade, you're going to want to enter getconnectedmedia.com for your chance to win the Asus Transformer Mini Convertible Laptop. Uh, and I believe, actually, we might even have the uh, the contest up on our, our Facebook site this week, Andy. That's right. So you can go to Get Connected Media. Just search that in Facebook. And if you're not liking our stuff, you want to do that because we post all our latest videos, gadget reviews, and, of course, the contests all on our Facebook page as well. Just search Get Connected Media inside Facebook and like our page. That's all the time we have left. Mike and Andy logging off. We will see you again next week.